hear the word of the Lord from the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 21, reading verses 12 to 17. So I invite your attention to the public reading of God's word here in the gospel according to Matthew. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city, to Bethany, and lodged there. And may God add his rich blessings to the reading and hearing of his word. And let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, please bow your heads with me. goes without saying that the event before us is a historical event in the life and ministry of Christ. But it is also a present event uh, for each of us, cleansing of the temple. I say that because uh, the Apostle Paul, by way of a divine revelation, says to the church at Corinth in the second epistle in the sixth chapter, For we are the temple of the living God. Many, many Americans believe that there's going to be a temple rebuilt and they're looking for geography, they're looking for something to happen regarding a nation and uh, tearing down perhaps another building and building up a new building, Temple of God. It's my own belief that Jesus is the end time temple and yet all of us are sinners and we need to be cleansed uh, daily in faith and repentance. So the Apostle Paul follows his reminder that we are the temple of God because of Christ who is in us. He says in the first verse of the seventh chapter, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Constant reminder that the word of God comes to effect cleansing because we are the dwelling place of the spirit of God. The end time temple has begun in Christ and his resurrection. But not unlike uh, Israel of old, we too need to be reminded and cleansed, uh, perfecting our holiness in the fear of the Lord. Someone has said that the church cannot have a witness to the world when it looks just like the world. And when the world co-ops our identity as God's covenant people, the divine presence in my own mind is questionable. 
And that is why Paul's uh, reminder is so prominent for each of us. We are the temple of God because of the resurrected Christ. And therefore, it's very important to be careful about what we think about, what we watch, what we see, what we do. I love the words of the psalmist, clean hands and a pure heart. Because God is everlasting holiness. It dwells within us, Spirit of God. In the historic encounter here, it's Passover. The pilgrims in Jerusalem are changing money to buy sacrificial animals in the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could go to the temple and they had a court where they could meet. And the God-fearing Gentiles could worship God there. But there's one problem with that. The temple leadership has pushed them out for this marketplace. A holy place for outreach to the nations is now a combination of futures market, the animal barns at the state fair, and a concession stand at a sports arena. And so godly Gentiles are crowded out and prevented from worship by the very keepers of the cultists who were to promote worship. One of the problems with uh, the nation of Israel in the days of Christ, they'd collapse within upon themselves, always looking within. Uh, but God had appointed them as priests to take the gospel to the nations. Simply one of their great commissions. Go to the nations. Be priests to deliver the gospel to the nations. The priests in the days of our Lord had crowded the Gentiles out, making for the occasion of an act of judgment on behalf of our Savior as he cleanses the temple. As you may or may not know, this is the second act of anger by our Lord over the temple. If you have your New Testaments, turn the Gospel of John to the second chapter. By the way, it is in the second chapter of John that Jesus says, tear this building down and I'll resurrect it in three days, meaning that he now is the end time temple. So that now the divine presence breaks upon the presence of Jesus. And so that the knowledge of him, the confession of him becomes absolutely radical in terms of belonging to the end time temple of God. But again, John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. It's interesting, is it not? I'm sure you could Google uh, prayer clause on computer and buy a prayer cloth. Maybe it even belonged to one of the apostles. I'm sure you can buy a splinter of the cross today. I'm sure you can buy some holy water, sprinkle it upon yourself and make yourself holy. There's all types of merchandise. Many churches have, of course, stores. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but I kind of wonder. Is it a house of merchandise? Is it a place to make some money? Again, I leave that to the conscience of people who run those churches. It's very clear here in John chapter 2, as well as Matthew chapter 21, our Lord is angry over the perverted use of the temple. 
What's instructive about the second chapter of the Gospel of John is that's the first act of cleansing in the beginning of our Lord's public ministry. And now in Matthew chapter 21, we're at the end of his ministry. And so, nothing has changed, has it? He begins his ministry with cleansing the temple. He's going to end his ministry with cleansing the temple. Then ultimately we know in the cross he's going to absolutely displace it in himself. But in terms of the nation, nothing has changed. It's just the same old deal, the same status quo, the same stale worship, the same ritual, the same practice as if it becomes perfunctory. Well, I got my ticket punched today. I went to church. Glad that's out of the way. But it's never out of the way if you understand who Christ is. There's a saying that comes out of the Protestant Reformation, reformed. What follows the word reformed is very critical, always reforming. We're reformed in our theology, but we must always be vigilant about our daily living and our daily lives to have clean hearts and clean hands and the worship of God because of Christ who dwells within by his Holy Spirit. Because we are the end time temple. Reminded of one of my most beloved hymns. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's the nature of our fallen hearts that we're prone to wander, to get distracted, to run down rabbit trails, to pursue something that really is a non-essential in terms of life and doctrine, but we make it essential. All the while, we collapse within upon ourselves and become stale, and the status quo seems to rule the day. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we're to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord because of who we are as the end-time temple of God. It's easy to read the history of this event. It's much more problematic and dynamic to understand that our identity is that end-time temple. And God has so identified us, and therefore we are to cherish our identity as the place where he lives in the Spirit of God. Reformed and yet always reforming in doctrine and in life. It's one of the reasons I'm committed to a lifelong ministry of biblical exposition, that the word might search our hearts. How shall a young man cleanse his way, the psalmist says? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. But again, I'm not so sure that in many churches the word of God becomes short shrift, some, some quick reading and then we get on to some homily and other things by taking heed thereto according to thy word. And so the occasion brings to us uh, the first great dramatic act in an act of active parable in the ministry of our Lord, an act of judgment upon the temple. The temple was cleansed, verses 12 to 14, because it is to reflect the divine presence, but emphatically it does not. It's my own conviction, God has long since left. And so the court of the Gentiles has become a futures market, like the animal barns at State Fair, the hawking of wares, 
as if God responds to us in grace because of something we do and buy. The text in my own mind is an allusion to 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 16. I say that because the verbs enter and cast out are used in both 2 Chronicles 29, Matthew chapter 21. Jesus enters the temple, begins to cast out things that don't belong there. The same occurs Second Chronicles. But the context is the same in both chapters. The temple is in spiritual disrepair. Notice I said spiritual. I'm sure physically it was fine, but that is never the matter. It's a spiritual battle. It's always the heart. It's in spiritual disrepair. In the Old Testament, the idolatry of Ahaz has polluted the sanctuary and corrupted the people. The grace of God, his son, becomes king, Hezekiah. And he commissions a cleansing of the temple. Second Chronicles 29, 16th verse. So the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out to the court of the house of the Lord. Then the Levites received it to carry it out to the Kidron Valley. I don't know what was there in terms of the details. But whatever was there didn't belong there. It's like sometimes the things we watch and see on television or perhaps watch and see in magazines, or give our attention to our ears to, that they don't belong in our hearts because the Lord God in the Spirit lives in our hearts and we're to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. So with the cleansing of the temple, it's the occasion for sacrifices to be offered. The Passover feast is restored along with the offerings to support the priests and the Levites. By the way, it's very critical understanding of, of course, you know, man's got to make a living. Let the priests and Levites fend for themselves. But they were the appointed teachers of the law of God among Israel. When the law is taken out, the people are going to fall and fail in their vision, their understanding of God. And so a radical event occurs. The law is reformed and they return to the support of the priests and the Levites. So the law can be present in the midst of the hearts of the people of God. And so it's a period of repentance and restoration based upon the word of God. And so we reread of a remarkable outcome of these acts of the priests and the Levites in 2 Chronicles 30, the 20th verse. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. might say revival occurred. Beginning, of course, with a righteous king cleansing the temple by the appointed means and the priest of the Levites and obeying the precepts of God as to what should and should not be in the temple.
we do that, don't we, sometimes? I mean, I, I mean, I wrestle over these things, but sometimes in the Christmas season, we might have a church that brings in camels and donkeys and all types of things. I, I can't say whether that's right or wrong, but I just kind of wonder, don't you? Isn't the word sufficient to cause us to purify our hearts in the worship of the great king and the reminder of the incarnate Christ? But we have bazaars and bingo and this program and that program. I don't know. But I wonder. But the word of God prompted Hezekiah to cleanse the temple. And the word of God sustained the cleansing. And so God healed and a great revival occurs. Jesus is now the greater king priest. Of all of the righteous monarchs of the nation of Israel, he becomes the quintessential perfection of them all to shepherd his people. Of the long line of the priests and the Levites, he is the instate, the one who comes to cleanse, to remind us of the fear of the Lord. Well, the act of judgment uh, breaks out in two causes for judgment that are constituted by two Old Testament citations. So, well, why did the Lord do that? Matthew's going to tell us in two Old Testament citations. The first is a citation from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Notice in Matthew 21, in the 13th verse, the introductory formula. He said to them, it is written. It is our reminder that the written word of God contained in Holy Scripture must have a vital part in our daily lives as the worshipers of the one true God. You begin to wax and wane there, and I promise you, your heart will begin to fade. It is written, Jesus says. There's some measure of an irony there because he's talking to the lawyers of the temple. But he's instructing them on the word of God. The context of Isaiah. The phrase house of prayer is found in Isaiah chapter 56 and the seventh verse. The context of the chapter is the end-time restoration of God in which those who were formerly excluded from coming to the temple are now embraced to come. Think about that in this way. Godly Gentiles could go to the temple, but they were restrained in the court of the Gentiles. They could go no further on pain of death. In the end time restoration, gospel becomes utterly universal and reaches to all mankind. The temple becomes utterly expansive, reaching beyond the nation because of Christ, the end time temple. So who was excluded in Isaiah 56? If you look at, if you look at verse... Verse 3, there's a couple of reminders. Let not the foreigner 
who has joined himself to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. I mean, as you know, foreigners couldn't go into the temple. They were excluded. You had to come through the nation of Israel. There was no other way. There was another person who was excluded. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Eunuchs were excluded. The blind and the lame were excluded. And yet now God in the end time restoration is doing something that is utterly marvelous. Isaiah 56, seventh verse. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That God in Jesus is now gathering all without distinction as part of the end time restoration and creation. The prophets, if you know, would foretell of a time when the Gentiles were invited to come. That time is now present in Jesus. And we don't come through a building. We don't come through geography. We don't come through Old Testament ritual and law. We come through Jesus, who is the end time temple. That he becomes the ultimate defining aspect that we are the covenant people of God because he is our God and dwells within our hearts in his spirit. So that the event prophesied in Isaiah chapter 56 is now beginning to be fulfilled in Jesus as he cleanses the court of the Gentiles from improper use by the temple authority so that they can come back and draw near to God. Very ironic fulfillment because Jesus drives the ungodly out so the Gentiles can come in. The nation has failed in its witness, but Jesus will succeed in his. And so he's reinstituting a new temple that you and I know that will ultimately end in his crucifixion and resurrection. The event, of course, is prophetic, and Jesus is fulfilling it. He's restoring in a momentary flash of revival. The house of God is a house of prayer. Throwing out the merchandise so that the Gentiles can come and draw close to God. And he is that God. In a measure, the gospel means that the sanctuary of God is open. Open to all. The irony, of course, must not escape us. The temple authorities are hindering the plan of God. Jesus is advancing it. It's a great illustration, or not, the crucifixion. God was sequestered in the Holy of Holies. It's a holy place, and then the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was localized. And then the marvelous act of the crucifixion, the veil is rent. Meaning that the Holy of Holies is now open to all. 
Formerly, God's presence was sequestered, but now it's open to all. All peoples, tribes, and tongues, and nations. Eunuchs and foreigners. No longer is it an ethnic issue. The issue is Jesus. The second reason for the cleansing of the temple is a citation from uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, the 11th verse. It's a, it's a very harsh statement. It's a very judgmental statement. Because they are messing with the advance of the gospel and what the temple really means. Again, Jeremiah chapter 7, the 11th verse. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I even I have seen it, declares the Lord. It's an incredible thing that they've redefined God, they've redefined the way to God, and utterly corrupted its purpose as a place of grace and mercy. It's a warning for improper ministry. The prophet is sent to the spiritual leaders to hear the word. What is the word that they're to hear? Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Well, it wasn't the temple of the Lord. That's the point of the text. They've corrupted it and changed it. Made it something that was never intended to be. A den of robbers. We do that, do we not? I mean, one of the initial acts of the Reformation driven by Martin Luther is he's troubled by Catholic monks selling indulgences. Buy this piece of paper and your loved ones can get out of purgatory. As if silver and gold can buy the grace of God when we know it cannot. In that sense, the church does not dispense the grace of God because we can't sell it, we can't merchandise it. But alas, I mean, we do that. We buy medals that have some saint stamped upon it and we think it'll give us safe journey. One of the ladies that came from the tradition of which this church was founded upon said, well, just leave Mary where she is. She'll bring you good luck. As if a statue is going to bring us good luck. It's a reminder that we begin to merchandise everything. When we need to be understanding who we are as the temple of God and we're to perfect our holiness in the fear of the Lord. We're the covenant people of God, the place where God lives and dwells. Their identity is to speak to that as a reminder where God meets with his people. The deception is that casual observance of temple practices is not a cover for their ungodliness. But sometimes we see the church just that way. Well, I'm just, just covering my bases. Oh, really? I remember going to a dinner party one night, speaking with a gentleman whose daughter was a 
studying something in the Middle East and he made some comment that he tried a lot of religions to pray for his daughter, just covering his bases to protect his daughter. There's a profoundly pagan statement. There's only one way to garner the spiritual protection of the people of God, and that is Jesus Christ. Protection in anyone else will never work, always fail. Because Christ is the end time temple. And if you're a Christian, he has come to live within your heart by his Holy Spirit. In their commerce, they have stolen the identity of the temple. And absent its true identity, the temple is just another building, an institution. Remember going to my son's baccalaureate service for his graduation from high school. Bishop of the church uh, stood up and said, we have uh, chapel services uh, in school grounds, but uh, uh, we don't teach only Jesus. I said to myself, oh, really? Is there some other way to him? The crucifixion, the veil of the temple rent, opening the holy of holies to eunuchs and to foreigners and every tribe and tongue and people and nation in, in Jesus and only Jesus. We have a way of thinking that we can become so smug in our political correctness and progressive thought. And I'm not so sure God doesn't leave. And I'm not so sure we shouldn't be saying, come back. But only in Jesus will he ever come back. The text of Jeremiah 7, 11 is now indirectly prophetic. What occurred in the days of the prophet are occurring again in the days of Jesus. A reminder of the constant refrain of the uh, book of Judges. Every man doing what was right in his own eyes. And we experience God based on our definition of the way to him. You've got your conception of God, and I've got mine, and you've got your conception of how to get to God, and I've got mine. My friend, the conception comes from Holy Scripture. Jesus is God. The only way to God is through Jesus. Any other way will lead you into the ditch. I remember a number of years ago reading a religion section of the Saturday paper. It's a church in the Protestant tradition that had a carpet in its basement. It had a maze on that carpet and they you could get on that maze and do something, I don't know what, maybe say something, I don't know what, but you could experience God. Oh, really? Experience God on a maze of a carpet. I'm sorry. I beg to differ. You experience God through his holy word and his living and abiding son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But hey, let everybody have their own experiences. Let everybody self-define God and self-define their way to him. I'm only telling you that that is the occasion for the cleansing of the temple. Because God has left and will not come back until the preeminence and the prominence of the Son of God is reestablished. And he becomes the beginning and the end 
of the life of the church and the life of the believer. Talking with a young couple a couple months back, left their previous church because of politics. I mean, I confess to you, I'm a political animal. I just don't care to tell you about it. Christ ought to be the only subject in his saving acts upon the cross, the only verbs, because that is the point of the end time temple. I understand the hymn prone to wander, prone to bring our preferences into the life of the church. And I'm not so sure Jesus doesn't leave when he ceases to be preeminent and prominent in everything that we do. From the preparation of our hearts to the singing of the hymns, to the reading of the texts and the prayers of the saints, to the great event of all of history, the call to worship the one true God in his Son. Who cares what my political affiliations are when there's everything to care about in Jesus Christ? Speaking with individual in the church uh, yesterday, preparing for a wonderful event that the ladies had in the shower to go to a church, but never could become a part of the church because our own educational philosophy with respect to our children. Isn't it interesting what we bring into the life of the church and we call holiness? Well, I do it this way for my child. Friend, I don't care how you do it. Educate your children in the fear and admonition of Jesus Christ and you're on the right path. I don't care whether you choose public or private or home or whatever. In the final analysis, point them to Christ. He's the only one that will get them through this life. I'm all for education. I'm not so sure in our culture it hasn't become an idol. We're all about teaching someone how to make a better living. In my own view, their end point of education ought to teach someone how to live a better life. Perhaps a life to Christ and God. Because absent him, eternity will be a terrible place. I know we have a way of doing that. We have a way of bringing our personalities, our preferences. So Jesus cleanses the temple, reminds us of its essential essence in himself. I will simply tell you, I cannot self-define God. That's an idol. And I cannot self-define the way to God because that's an idol too. And that is why God reveals himself in Holy Scripture. And may God always give us in his grace the wherewithal to pursue that above all things in the ministry of the church. Well, it always happens when we read 
great acts of judgment like the cleansing of the temple. The grace of God is very near. Two great events always seemingly occur together, judgment and grace. And so Jesus will momentarily restore the function of the temple in grace. In grace. The blind and the lame understand what is happening. They understand the fulfillment. And they come to seek healing. And Jesus heals them. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You can see the judgment. He's bypassed the temple mafia and turned to the, if you will, almost the lowest of the low, the blind and the lame. People who understood that they were profoundly needy and God in his grace meets them at their point of need and heals them through Christ, the great king over all. They know the doors are now open to them and they come. They need grace. Now that the temple has been purified, it's restored temporarily to be a place of revival and he heals them. It's a very interesting text in the Old Testament about the blind and the lame. Second uh, Samuel, fifth chapter, the eighth verse. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusite, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into this house. They're excluded. But now God in Christ includes them. Great active revival. Jesus is the greater Davidic king. He is the eternal Davidic king. He can change the rules as he wills because of who he is. He can redefine as he does in himself. The physical institution becomes almost nothing now. I know there's a sect of American Christianity and I'm respectful of it. It's looking for a rebuilding of the temple in the Middle East. Again, it's not my view. I'm respectful of it. It's a secondary issue. I would rather look to Jesus as the end time temple. And I would rather see myself as blind and he healed me. The great hymn, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was so lame, I, I had not the strength or the wherewithal to enter the house of God. And he makes us whole in the gospel in himself is the divine presence. The coming of God to the new people of God in the Son of God. The excluded are now included. I always kind of trouble occasionally in our own church life. Uh, says of the gospel that all tribes, tongues, people, and nations 
Grace Bible Church, why aren't there different ethnic backgrounds and more? Because they can come. The doors are wide open in Jesus Christ. We have a thriving oriental community in Oklahoma City. I hope someday they'll come. Many others as the ethnic background of America is forever changing. But the doors are open in Christ. The nation of Israel, so many were excluded. But now they're included by the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus heals them as an illustration of his ability to reverse the effects of the fall and to institute the end time creation. I just remind you of the hymn. I once was blind, but now I see. In Christ, the Son of God. So what's happening after the act of judgment, an act of grace, Jesus is restoring the true function of the divine presence in the praise of Jesus. I'll simply say it this way. In the American church experience, whenever Christ becomes less and less, it loses its way. It ceases to be the temple of God. Wherever it goes, I do not know. But in this momentary act of revival and the healing of the lame and the blind, there's a restoration of the great end state of the temple and the praise of Jesus. And so praise begins to occur. Not only do the blind and lame understand what is happening while the temple mafia is rejected, they come and are healed, but remarkable event occurs in another vein that reminds us of who Christ is, and that is the praise of Christ, the praise of Jesus, as a reflection of one of the preeminent roles of the temple of God in our hearts and when we gather corporately in worship. Verses 15 to 17. The praise of Jesus as a preeminent temple function. Again, I remind you of this sad act of progressivism. Many roads to the presence of God. No, my friend, there's but one, Jesus. The act of praise that is now occurring in the court of the Gentiles is a reminder that only Jesus is worthy of praise and that everyone else must fall away. That's not my definition. That's the definition of the text, all of the Scripture, pointing to Christ as the sum and substance of the reason that the church exists is the end-time temple of God. When it begins to lose the praise of Jesus as an inscription that he is God alone, it just becomes another institution in another building. The children begin to praise God in Jesus for his marvelous works. The temple mafia is indignant, and Jesus answers by citing to them as a reason for the children praising God, the eighth psalm in the second verse. Out of the, of, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. The eighth psalm is a hymn celebrating the great works of God in physical creation. 
Jesus is now fulfilling it indirectly but more intensely in the spiritual creation. In the Old Testament, praise fell to God alone. It now falls to Jesus as he is God. And the children are praising him for the marvelous act of the end time temple and the healing of the lame and the blind. A great revival is occurring as God is gathering his people through Jesus Christ. And they're arguing about the praise? That you and I ought never to lose the wonderment that God came to us in his son and saved us and placed us in himself. And so as the Apostle Paul enjoins us, always perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That Christ, as God, has begun the new creation and the children are praising him for it. The irony is that the seemingly insignificant children understand what is going on while the intelligentsia is in denial and complaining. Incredible. But we lose our way when we lose Christ. It's a great illustration of this in Revelation chapter 3, the 20th verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. It's a divine presence of the covenantal God coming in Jesus Christ, making an invitation to the church. An invitation to the church? What in the world is Jesus doing on the outside having to knock on the door? He ought to be on the inside because that is where he is. But he's been pushed out by all of our programs, by all of our hawking of wares, by all of our subordination to the word of God and its preeminence and its authority and its vitality as the living, breathing word of God. That sometimes God leaves And he stands at the door and knocks to get back in. It's an incredible reminder of what the church sometimes does in our contemporary culture. Paul reminds us, you are the temple of God, therefore perfect holiness. One of my favorite Western movies is Shane. You recall the account at the end of the movie, come back, Shane. Come back, Shane. Well, come back, Lord Jesus. Enter into our presence. We have made you subordinate, and yet we are to be the subordinates. We have made you less and ourselves great, and we must reverse the role. We come now to praise you and to acknowledge your greatness and your goodness and your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everyone thinks they're so mature today with uh, all of their self-defining of God and elevating their human experiences above the word and validating it as the way to God. Maybe Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is a verse that ought to be taken to all of us. He's been pushed out of the church. Five of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are in serious spiritual trouble because they're compromising their identity. Bringing things into their lives that they ought not to bring. Doing things that they ought not to do. Not doing things that they ought to do. So he's been pushed out. But there's still that invitation knocking upon the door giving us the great covenantal promise. If anyone hears my word, my word, 
and opens a door, I will come into him, will dine with him, and he with me. So sum and substance of the great covenantal promise of the Old Testament now falling upon Christ. The divine presence where he meets with his people, dines with them in celebration. And he is our God and we are his people. The sheep of his pasture. In Jesus Christ, the only redeemer. Would be my fervent prayer. The abiding passion in our own church, never to lose sight of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, never to make short shrift of his word, regardless of the prevailing winds that blow in church life. That he defines, he is the sum and substance, he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. That he comes to meet with us, to define us. And when we identify with Jesus, we are identified with the people of God. And because he is so great and utterly majestic, may we do as the Apostle Paul has so enjoined us, perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. For he has come to meet us, come to live within by the Holy Spirit, come to be our God. And as we identify with him, we are radically changed because he is our God and we are his people. The church today is many things. I leave it to your imagination and perhaps your own experience, places you've been or not been. But the scriptures declare the absolute and unique essentials. It is a place of the word of God for end-time revival resulting in the praise of Jesus. The end-time restoration has begun in him. May we so identify with him. And may we never, never lose the sense of praise in light of who he is and what he did in the God of heaven coming to us to dine and to sup with us to make us his sons and his people. that he would be our God and we would be his forever and ever.